0: I think I watched like four episodes and then my wife was like, no, we're not watching this anymore.
1: <laughs> my wife did that with The Wire. I just continued to watch it myself. Actually, have, have you guys watched The Wire?
0: Yeah, that was another one Wire? that we gained a little ways into and then I got the, nope.
1: Yeah, I, I had been watching The Wire. I was like two seasons in and I finally convinced my wife to watch an episode with me. Or I wasn't even like that far, it. I was on the first season. still. So finally convinced my wife to watch an episode. Her one like thing that'll rule out any any movie or book for her or TV show is like if there are kids in danger and the one episode she watched is the one where they, they kill baby Michael B. Jordan <laughs> and I was like no it doesn't it's all like got in every episode it's, oh, no. it's the only time God anything like this happened
2: oh, where Wallace at string where Wallace at terrible alright are you guys ready to jump into this Talking about the devil's backbone? I truly don't know, but let's do it anyway.
1: (laughs) All right. Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. (laughs) Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold a or to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about Guillermo del Toro's second big independent feature film. This one actually in Spanish, not just a little bit in Spanish like Kronos. This is The Devil's Backbone. I'm your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cinebites Bites. First, they're here to challenge the sexy werewolf, sexy vampire binary, my co-host, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? Finally,
2: representation we can really relate to immature wannabe comic creators.
1: Yes. Very good. Like, Again,
2: that, that died when Jaime was like, I'm going to make comic books. I'm like, okay, <laughs>
1: Jaime, go for it. Just as just as likely to work out as it was for the rest of us at this point, I think. And our co-host, Emily, is on vacation this week. She is at Emerald City Comic Con. I would tell you to go see her, but by the time this posts, it'll be well over. So don't go there looking for her right now. But we have or two do. great guests tonight. Yeah. Tell us about it. Just wander into the convention center, demand to see comic books. Great. And we have two great guests filling in tonight, though. First of all, a returning guest and graphic novel writer, the writer of
0: Nick's. It's Susan Beneville. Susan, great to have you back. Great to be here. Thank you very much. You know, of course, Jaime is one, once again an artist who thinks he doesn't need a writer.
1: Yes. Very important. That Very
0: important.
2: Oh, that moment kicked me right in the
1: soul. <laughs> yep. Me too. Well, I've been there. And our other guest, the writer of Anne of West Philly and the relevant to this and award-winning archival quality, Ivy Noah Weir. Avi, it's great to see you.
3: Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk about my chosen father, Guillermo del Toro.
2: Yes. And you can really tell it's Guillermo del Toro because there is endless sympathy for the ghost and the supernatural elements. It's never the ghosts that are a problem in a Del Toro movie. It's always people, except for Pacific Rim, where it was legitimately just the giant monster.
1: I mean, that the one ended ghosts up being were also clear-cut. not problems in there. So you know,
3: no, that's true. true. Yeah, very few ghost problems in that movie. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. Almost none. <laughs> I mean, to be sure,
2: his his creative ghost haunted the shit out of the sequel.
1: Oh. Oof. <laughs> yeah, this one. This is a. Beautiful movie. Yeah. I don't know. Yes. Amazon had the brand new, I guess, super HD restoration of it, which uh, watching it on my TV is like, why do new movies not look this good? Yeah.
2: What gorgeous film. Like, to quote Harry Styles, it's like
3: a movie. <laughs> it does feel like a movie.
2: You know? Well, yeah, it's had those movie qualities. Yeah. And, and I say that a little because I love to make fun of the Don't Worry Darling drama. But also, I mean, coming off of Kronos last week, which really had an indie low budget horror film coming into this, it really is a sense of like, oh, we have leveled up. This is not fucking DIY horror. This is real cinema now. We're dealing with the Spanish Civil War. We've got gorgeous cinematography and shots. And with the exception of a couple explosion effects, I mean, really just, like, fantastic, just very atmospheric, just a
1: movie, movie. (laughs) I'm bad at words today. It's been a week. Yeah, it had a real, like, Steven Spielberg and Stephen King worked on a movie together, but they were Spanish. Like, that's what it feels like. It's got the, like, Stephen King... Little boys fucking around and, you know, getting into deep supernatural shenanigans. And then Ooh, the Spielberg like epic pan across desert and following, you know, follow the car into the place. And just the really great shots that you're like, yeah, like I wouldn't have thought to make that to get that shot. And he did. It's real good.
2: And no, you're totally right. Why aren't modern movies looking this good?
3: I feel like it's also the first one where you can see the comic book influence in del Toro's work, like the shots of the bomb and everything. I know that he's said that he was really inspired by a Mexican cartoonist and the name is escaping me, but actually hired them to work on the storyboards for the film. So that's awesome. Some of those shots actually are done, you know, were, were storyboarded by a comic book artist. And I feel like it carries so through the rest of his films, that very comic panel-esque framing, you know, things seeming larger than life to these kids, like, I just think it's so gorgeous. I mean, I think oh, even yeah. from the
0: opening shot where they see where you see the Bombay doors open on the bomber and you, you're just following the bomb. Great yeah. opening shot. Yeah. Oh, my God. Just awesome. I
2: don't know if you, if it's more directing or cinematography, but everyone involved in just the filming of this movie fucking brought their A-game. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a superbly well-made film. Like, yeah. by the way, I really, I didn't have very many notes on this film just because it was just so well-crafted. Like, there was no fat. There was nothing that wasn't emotionally important or contributed to the themes or the atmosphere.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think even, like, down to the casting, this, this movie is pretty immaculate because, like, anytime you get a group of little boys in a story like this, some of them tend to like fade into each other and you're like, which kid is this? I don't know. But like, these kids are all like very distinctive. Yeah. Not just in their, their personalities, but in their looks. And you know, they've got certain accessories and stuff that you're like, Oh, that's the kid with the goggles. Okay. Got it. I remember yeah. him. So like, it's, it's really well put together. And I think like going back to what Ivy said, Guillermo del Toro is a fine choice for a found father or for a chosen father, because not only is he like a great filmmaker, he looks like a great hugger. Great artist, the, yeah.
3: God, you know he gets the best hugs. You know it's the like best hugging best Totoro. Hugs.
1: I feel like this dude's going to be a great <laughs> hugger. We've 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 talked well, about this before on this show. I think he's. he's I would like to hug Guillermo del Toro. It seems
3: like it would be great. Yes, All everything wrong with my life. I think if I could <laughs> if I could give Guillermo to del Toro a hug.
2: Well, I mean there is that that famous anecdote about how uh, the little girl actress in the flashback scene of Pacific Rim. To help her be not afraid during filming, let her call him Totoro. Let him call him Totoro during filming, it's which is so just cute. so adorable.
3: Or have you seen that footage of him? So he has like a favorite like kaiju, and he went to Japan to do promo, I think your Pacific Rim, and they show him getting to meet like an actor in the kaiju costume, and he's just delighted. Like he's just it's the happiest I've ever seen someone look. He's just the cutest yeah. man you know, who makes the most the terrifying movie. movie. I feel like they
2: say, you know, like, oh, you don't want to see how like the sausage is made of like creative endeavors. Like once you peek behind the curtain, it loses magic. I think but there's so much that like if the creative process that like increases the magic and I think you can see that with Del Toro, that like he's not just seeing a monster design he likes. He's seeing decades of film history and the directors and actors and effects teams who put that history and the greater context. And I mean, he's just a a man who clearly loves film and that love is felt in the DNA of all of his movies.
3: Absolutely. They feel so personal. And I think what especially like I love about the devil's backbone is that so he considers it a sister to Pan's Labyrinth he thinks of them as like a pair of movies and they both feel so personal. And I feel like you can feel like memories of childhood. And again, like that love of filmmaking, that love of comic books, like things that we carry through our lives into adulthood, like so reflected in them. And it makes them feel very personal to you.
2: If someone told me that Guillermo del Toro was actually born in 1929 (laughs) and then in 1942 time traveled to like 90 like 1990 I would believe you you, like because, like you said it's like I know this man wasn't alive for the Spanish Civil War (laughs) whatever he went through there this is clearly an era or experience that resonates with him on an incredibly deep level
1: I'm not an old enough person to really make this like stick but I think it's incredible that Guillermo del Toro as still a very young filmmaker at the point that he was making this has the like insight to write characters like Carmen and Dr. Caceres who are like older people who like have a lot of interiority who have a lot of stuff going on some of it's kind of fucked up but like they feel like real people who have lived really long hard lives and like that's not something you can say, I think, for a lot of even good young filmmakers. But like,
2: like, I mean, you want to talk a- actors who I who are amazing in this movie, Federico Lupi as Dr. Casares, just incredible. He's like, incredible. He, such a... he looks
3: so much like Christopher Lee. It throws me off. <laughs> <He's> so... <laughs> he does. He... <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs>
2: Absolutely, hundred percent looks like Argentinian Christopher Lee. Hundred percent,
1: Christopher Lee.
0: You you get that sense of like that love of film, and as you know, I I love old films and I love you know film noir. And so you can see that, you know, Del Toro is somebody who clearly studied those like old classic films where they have like older women and older men who are like still vibrant. You know that just isn't something you see now, and you see like like her lust and her passion and all those things and same thing with with him and um and we just don't see that i think in in modern films certainly not in these sort of fantastical films and i that was one of the things that i just loved about it was the humanity of those two characters and i mean all the characters but they just grabbed me also
2: yeah. between this and Cronos, having now seen federico look clean shaven with a mustache and with a beard fucking beard all the way
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's I mean, he looks and,
2: amazing in that beard. He looks he looks great in this movie. You know, with, uh, aside from the part where he's dead and covered in flies, but when he's alive, he looks great.
1: <laughs> nobody looks great dead and covered in flies. You know, it's a lot to it's a lot to expect of somebody. But I don't feel like we can talk about him without talking about Marissa Paredes as well, who like,
0: yes,
1: great, I, like, I've yes. you know, I've seen her in in several other films you know she was in sobre mi madre, and she's in the skin i live in like and she is always just fantastic like she she brings it every time those are both pedro madavar movies so like he he writes women very well as well but like yeah she's she's so deep there's so much going on with carmen throughout this movie that like as the movie goes on it just sort of keeps peeling back layers on her And, you know, by the time you find out the worst things about her, you already like her a lot. So you're like, ah, uh, (laughs) that's that's terrible, I guess.
0: I mean, mean, it just makes you feel like so much more compassion for other characters, right? Makes you feel a little bit more compassion for Jacinto. And and it also makes you look at how fully developed each character is.
2: Well, act one Jacinto before you realize just what a piece of shit he is. I mean,
3: fucking, I get it.
2: like. Yeah, Marissa Paredes.
3: Jacinto is such a great antagonist for exactly the reason we were just talking about. Like he has so much depth. I feel like Del Toro gives you and like at the beginning, you know, we were talking about it. and You said there was like no fat on it, right? Like in such a tight film to give that much depth to an antagonist is really hard because it would be very easy to make Jacinto like a mustache twirling like yeah. child murderer. But instead, he's a complex
2: child murderer,
3: (laughs) a more interesting child murderer. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, very
2: interesting child. A very interesting child murderer. Yeah. Like every right. like no one's just a cartoon character, except maybe Goggles Boy. Goggles Boy might be a little bit of a cartoon, but everyone else is very three dimensional. Like the degree to which Jaime is introduced is just the taller orphanage bully. And Mm -hmm. then goes on to be so developed. Yeah. Like to the point where Jaime kind of overshadows Carlos in the plot.
0: Yeah. I
3: think the shot of the bomb landing on the night that Jaime sees it, I think it's one of my favorite shots in any movie ever made. It's so, like, I don't know. You feel so much that experience for him. Like he goes through this terrible experience and he comes outside and the bomb lands. And it's like, I don't know. You just feel so bonded to him in that moment.
1: Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing to evoke in people watching this movie that by the time you get to the end of the movie, you're like, I really hope Jaime gets to kill this guy. (laughs) (laughs) I really want him to get that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God, by
2: the end of the movie, hell yeah, especially because this isn't like, oh, we stopped the villain right at the height of his plan, or we're having an epic duel, and I win the duel. This is a mob of people. People like repeatedly spearing someone crawling along the floor. So it says a lot about how good the setup is that I'm still entirely rooting for this. That at no point during just this, you know, group child murder am I being like, ooh, is this too far? Should this be a good thing? I'm still like, hey, you're doing what you got to do. Go get them, kids. <laughs> That's a tough line for a movie to walk, and this movie dances on it.
3: Del Toro is so intentional with violence. You know, I think a lot about like the bottle breaking scene in Pan's Labyrinth. If you've seen Pan's Labyrinth, it's pretty gruesome. Even like the, you know, this repeated stabbing with sticks, right? Like there's never violence in his movies that feels over the top, even though it really easily could. It always feels really realistic and really grounded. And I think that's what makes it so affecting because it feels like very visceral and very real. Like, I can't think of him ever using violence in, like,
0: a fetishistic way. Right. I mean, I found that the, the stabbing scene to be almost restrained. Like, I thought it was going to be, like, the stabbing of the mammoth, and it would just be, like, this frenzy. And it really wasn't. I mean, it really wasn't. Oh, like, shit, I didn't even make the mammoth up. connection. <laughs> Fuck, oh, I didn't even. Sorry. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, this movie, y'all.
1: <laughs> that w- first spear that goes in under his arm just looks mm-hmm. so painful. Like, it looks like so it hurts painful. so much. And like he like, doesn't there's that. no entrails. There's not a ton of blood in this, except for used as like color effect more than anything. But like when that first spear hits under the arm and that that soft spot, it's just it hurts to watch. You're like, oh yeah. Like there's I really no kind of want that guy that. to die right
2: now, but oh my God.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. Like there's no I'm like, ooh, th- this isn't gonna be a fight. He he is lost. There's no coming back from that. The one moment that I think del Toro kind of gave into spectacle, this is more object destruction than violence on person is. And I again, if someone told me Robert Rodriguez like filled in for a day while del Toro had a stomach bug, I would believe you is when the car explodes and debris flies straight into the camera as a scene transition. Yeah, I th- yeah, it's a cool moment, but it's also yeah. kind of totally out of place with the rest yeah, of the movie. Yeah, totally very yeah.
1: strange. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it it works because so many children die in that scene. Oh, like, yeah. When they come back and they pan back over the ground and there are several young boys dead. Like, not dying, yeah, but like, they are gone. It's like, oh, like, that wasn't a fun action explosion. That was an explosion of, like, a car, and when cars explode, pieces of them come off, and they kill people.
2: Right. I want to say Del Toro is always so good about showing just, you know, they say you can't make a truly anti-war film, because to show war is to glamorize it, but I feel like Del Toro might have found a way to tell a truly anti-war film by never showing the soldiers or the battle, but by focusing squarely on the effects and trauma of innocence,
3: yeah. The critic um, Jay Hoberman called *The Devil's Backbone* when it was released anti-fascist supernaturalism, and I really Ooh, loved I like that. that. I know, isn't that, that just awesome? But I well, think it's a true. lot more
0: of that these days. Yeah, <laughs> right. I think that oh Del Toro is really.
3: I would say that Del Toro is an anti-fascist filmmaker. I mean, it's so much a theme in a oh, lot of 100%. his work. You oh, yeah. know.
2: I mean, to bring it back to Pacific Rim, which is not a horror movie, but is a movie I love. I mean, he talked in great detail in interviews about, like, how much thought he put into just, you know, the titles of this fighting force that he very explicitly wanted to avoid traditional military titles, which is why, uh, you know, it's like, I forget what Idris Elba's rank is in that to Google. But yeah, it's all about, like, rangers and marshals instead of like generals and lieutenants and captains. Like he was very explicit about wanting to, in this one movie where he kind of absolutely does glorify violence, granted it's giant robot on monster violence. So not something that I think people will have too much real world trauma about, hopefully. Then again, we Emily has made us watch a lot of Evangelion, so I'm not sure. (laughs) But even in this one movie where, It is monsters versus robots. He's still putting thought into, okay, if we're glorifying this big beat-em-up, how can we make sure we're not accidentally glorifying the military alongside it? And uh, especially if you look at that in the context of, say, like, you know, like the Michael Bay films with the military's presence or Dark Knight Rises where you have Batman literally leading an army of cops. You know, it's it's a level of thought and anti-fascism that I don't think a lot of other filmmakers are really as conscious or aware of and as intentional on avoiding.
1: The only other one that comes to mind is Ryan Johnson. And I think that's just because I'm I'm watching Poker Face right now, which is basically oh, Ryan what if Columbo was not a cop? <laughs> <laughs>
2: R- <laughs> Ryan Johnson definitely also in the anti fascist camp. Also, I have not watched Dark Knight Rises in quite a number of years and only just now in this moment pulling that example out of thin air did I realize how poorly Batman leading an army of cops has aged.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that whole movie has a lot of issues. (laughs) Like, Dark Knight has a lot of issues on a thematic level that are easily forgotten underneath like Heath Ledger's performance and things like that. Uh, Dark Knight Rises does not have that sort of thing going for it
0: no
1: <laughs> well ben did you want to uh do the the recap uh
2: yes the devil's backbone is introduced through uh carlos an orphan who has just lost his father doesn't seem fully aware that he's lost his father and that never that really comes back up again he doesn't it's know because the whole movie never knows that his father's dead so that's a thing and he's dropped off Importantly, it's the Spanish Civil War. His father was an anti-fascist, and he is brought to an orphanage run by other members of that um the socialist forces. It's not really clear if they're funding or how it all works, uh, but the people running it, uh, Dr. Casares and Carmen, are very clearly former or actively involved in fighting the fascists in the civil war. You know, they talk, a lot, they talk about, like, ooh, maybe England or France will come or help us. And then they talk about how that's definitely not going to happen. Ernest Hemingway flies in with his ambulance. Okay, that part didn't happen. But, you know, somewhere <laughs> during this movie, Ernest Hemingway was driving an ambulance around. On his first night in the orphanage, Carlos meets several other orphans, like aforementioned Goggle Boy, whose name I don't remember and is not in the Wikipedia credits. that's
0: Galvez, Galvez,
2: thank you, Owl, whose deal is he does not talk and is small, and Jaime, who, as we've talked about, is introduced as a bully who is mean to Carlos, takes his comics, and pranks him into getting in trouble. But as we will find out, uh, he is a far more complicated person, also an artist, and Carlos and him start to be friends after Carlos doesn't rat him out for them all sneaking outside at night. Not that Casares doesn't figure it out anyway, because Casares is smart like that. He's been at this game longer than they've been alive. They can't keep fucking secrets from Casares. He knows what's up. Meanwhile, there's also Jacinto, who is nominally engaged to the woman who works at the orphanage, but is also having an affair with Carmen, who is rightfully ashamed because he was also an orphan in her care way back when. So He's an OG
1: orphan. He's been an orphan there for like 16 years, I think he says.
2: There's layers. I mean, it's not quite edible, but it's uncomfortably close. And he... He's just bad. I mean, you know, he is generally just horrible to be around and also just cuts Carlos's face as, like, a warning. So, you know, generally stay away from the people who just indiscriminately knife children's faces. His girlfriend,
1: Uh, Conchita, turns out to be a real G, though. Like,
2: Oh, she's absolute G.
1: She spends a lot of the movie sort of watching him do bad shit and making excuses for it, but, like later on in the movie, will be the one that's like, well, everybody else here is old or a child, so I guess I'm going to walk a day and a half to town to, like, save the day, despite, you know, wearing a dress and old shoes. Like, I'm just going to... She doesn't even take here. water.
2: She's she's just ready to right. go. And then it's still point blank by Jacinto, like, I'm going to kill you if you don't come with me. And she is, says, get fucked at yeah. night point. <laughs> so she unfortunately does not make it but she goes out like like a boss on her feet telling Jacinto to his face what a piece of shit she is she's awesome but before all of this fucking Carlos sees a ghost Santi you know and it's in that kind of way where del Toro likes to do where it's like ooh, ghost is this gonna be creepy or scary but you're like no, Del Toro. I know you're making it. You love ghosts. The ghost is clearly going to turn out to be a good person who was like wrongfully killed and helped them in the end. Which is I love how they do happen. his
1: the effect of yeah. of Santi. Like he looks mostly really... like a normal kid from a distance, except that he's a little you know pale and washed out because he's been underwater for a long time. But like he has like this sort of trickle of blood coming out of his forehead so cool. anytime he shows up, which like is such a quick really indicator of like. Oh, that's not, that's not right. <laughs> that yeah. Yeah. that so isn't thing, a normal child.
3: Del Toro perfects also this in Crimson Peak later. Like he brings back the floaty blood ghost and you're yes. like, hell yeah, man. Keep doing it. I want to see more <laughs> so of <that's> that. The, <laughs> I, I saw Crimson
2: it. Peak first before this movie. So I'm like seeing the ghost again. I'm like, I know your tricks, Del Toro. I saw Crimson <laughs> Peak. That kid's fine. That kid's going to be an ally. Don't
1: be a jerk about it. But this movie's much better than Crimson Peak, which we've already talked this about. This movie is much better than Crimson Peak.
2: You can't like, argue it really. Straight up this is a better movie. I'm sorry. Coming of age in the Spanish Civil War is more interesting than
3: fucking Loki does an incest. I'm a Crimson Peak apologist, and even I can't like there's no like to stand on to say. Devil's Backbone. I'm not better. saying it's absolutely a, better.
2: <laughs> bad, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's a bad movie by any means. I'm just saying this, this. This is not a hard ranking to make. No, it's not. But yeah, so there's Ghost. We learn way more about, you know, the characters in the world. But after Cassaris goes into town to sell his weird fucking fetal his
1: Dead remains. baby rum.
0: Rum <laughs> juice. Yeah, the dead baby juice was a little bit. Disturbing to me. That was like the most disturbing thing about the whole movie to me. That almost felt
2: like he made the whole movie, couldn't come up with a good title. Thought, ooh, Devil's Backbone. That title slaps, and then threw a scene together just to justify it.
1: Yeah, because the the um, idea is that this child died because they have a you know deformation that they call the Devil's Backbone, and it's been preserved in this this mixture that is primarily rum and spices that the the doctor then sells to men to supposedly cure their impotence because guys will drink anything if they think it'll make yeah, take care of their impotence.
0: He drinks it, though. That was the
2: part that creeped me out. I mean... Well, I mean, that to me was... You talk about these characters getting internality and getting to be complicated. Here's a guy who knows it's bullshit, is peddling the bullshit himself, but even he wants to believe in yeah. it
1: enough to give it a try. He really desperately wants to not be impotent <laughs> like it's you know he he clearly is you know in love with barman but cannot physically do anything about it which she is desperate for somebody to be able to do something about it incredibly which lonely
2: Jacinto does J- Jacinto is nice to look at if nothing else and that is the only thing that is nice about Jacinto after Casares goes into town he finds out that he sees that one of the loyalists who brought Carlos to the orphanage has been captured by fascists in a very harrowing execution scene that, once again, is not gory, but the violence is...
1: It's so incredible full how they impact do it. And
2: it's just horrible, fine? Yeah.
1: Because, like, and they don't they first show introduced... him being shot at all. They show no. Caceres' reaction to it. And every time the gun yeah. fires, it's so loud. And yeah. Caceres, like, jumps every time it happens because it's it's you know, obviously so horrible to watch and you're just watching him watching it and it's, it's still so hard very
2: effective use of discretion shot. It is absolutely a case where not seeing it is much more effective than seeing it. I will say though, when they first introduced like, ooh, foreign soldiers are in town, are here, I did not realize this was setting up an execution and my first thought was, oh shit, is this where we're going to get a Ron Perlman cameo?
1: No, no, we Ron got Americans Perlman, in here. We
2: we got English speakers in here. We, it's Perlman here. I've, I've been waiting for Ron Perlman this whole movie.
1: We know, we Which, know Del Toro's not going to let him speak Spanish. So I will right. say,
2: Ron Perlman not in this movie. And while I do believe Ron Perlman is one of those actors that improves anything he's in, he probably would have been a distraction in this particular <laughs> film about orphans in the Spanish Civil War <laughs> coming off of del toro doing a low budget fun vampire movie seeing him really be able to lock into and absolutely deliver on a very somber serious tone with complicated themes i mean if Kronos was the sense of like ooh, this is a director with potential devil's backbone is where you go like oh wow this is this is a director this is a spielberg level director like we're watching develop
1: yeah yeah i I think it's interesting too we haven't really talked about there's like the sort of a soap plot throughout the thing of like he is trying to get to the last of the gold that they're saving for the loyalists which is in a safe in the kitchen which sets up a lot of the like bad shit that happens throughout the movie um it's him trying to get into this safe And part of the deal of how he's doing it is anytime he goes to Carmen's room to sleep with her, he switches out some of the keys from her key ring to go try those on the uh, safe and has not managed to find the right one yet. Thinks that she doesn't notice. We know that she notices because she's, you know, looking at the keys at one point earlier. And
2: those are two very obvious elements that I did not connect.
1: Yeah. I finished
2: out this movie going, so what was up with the keys? And he was having sex. That makes sense. (laughs) So yeah. yeah, so seeing that one of their loyalist allies who knows about their orphanage and them and the gold has been captured, Casares convinces Carmen that they all have to leave and they try to take the orphans with them. But Jacinto is like, hey, what if I take all the gold for myself? Instead, Casares comes out with a gun. We get a bunch of lines comparing guns to penises as, you know, you're want to do with phallic objects. And Jacinto is driven away from the orphanage for all of about five minutes before he comes and lights a bunch of gas canisters on fire, which then very gruesomely and tragically kills Carmen, a bunch of the orphans, and mortally wounds Casares. So you do get this whole thing of like the one helper lady just like trying to fan out this Gasoline can fire for an inordinate amount of time. I know. Yeah. Poor
3: Alma. For almost
1: For almost the other teacher who is only in like really three or four scenes prevalently and decides to put out a gas can fire by beating it with a blanket just to get blown to smithereens in that scene.
2: They didn't know the gasoline was poured all the way to the car. That the car explosion definitely was awful but to a certain extent that deaths within the orphanage still was like get out you, yeah the towel's not gonna win i think it's time to call it go which even yeah. carmen's like okay go alma is is whipping that towel right to the bitter end yeah i, um,
1: I think alma is determined you know that it, it might take her but she's going to do anything she can to try and save the kids
2: yeah she's doing nothing <laughs>
1: The towel's <laughs> doing nothing. She's, she's trying. <laughs> Grab a kid and run. Now, Conchita is the one who sees him pouring the gasoline. And even though she's incredibly intimidated and still kind of in love with him at this point, does shoot him in the shoulder with a shotgun.
0: Doesn't, great.
1: Totia's doesn't take him 10 out, but she, she does her best. Like, oh, she and,
0: is... and Carmen's pretty heroic because she's he the heavy. one who's trying to get Alma out of there. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, Carmen's great. Was her very heavy okay, lift Again
2: this isn't a, a true criticism or something. It's just like this movie gave me very little moments that I can construe into silliness. So I got t- I got to take what little <laughs> silliness I could get from this movie. And it was pretty much like Alma with the towel and the creepy eye Jesus statue. That was way too bloody. But yeah. So after that, Cochita uh, walks like a G to try to get help from around town. And Dr. Casares Oh, poor Dr. Casares, you know, he can't hear anything. He can't hear Carmen's dying words, so instead reads her a dying poem that's real fucking sad. And then just lives long enough to taunt Jacinto and go, ha, I'm still alive, before then immediately dying.
1: Yeah, it scares him off for a little bit. Yeah,
2: he buys time. He makes a vow strong enough to then become a ghost.
1: Jacinto does come back with his two henchmen, who um, we don't really learn much about other than that they are... Both not loyalists and also afraid of the fascists, they seem to be just all around bad dude. Down to the point that one of them is just named El Porco, like he's just the pig. Right.
2: He, well, he he is he is big and literally named Pig, but we learn he has a brother in Portugal. So hey, hey, no, that's not a character trait at all. That, that's nothing.
1: But, Best thing he's got going for him, he has a brother.
2: Yeah. So they lock up the kids and Jaime kind of rallies the troops to be like, what if we may, we're tiny, but spears can be sharp, which is very sound logic. And fuck, yeah, how did I not pick up on the mammoth element from earlier? Fuck, that just stared me right in the face. I'd like to think I'd have caught that on a rewatch, but who knows? And Galvez gets hurt and twists his ankle. And even though he, again, he can just fucking hop on one leg. It's right around the fucking corner. Let him all out. He just kind of rests, takes a breather. So Ghost Cesars comes and opens the door, which I like. I love Ghost Cesars. That was a really nice moment.
1: Interesting that we never see him. Like, yeah, we just see like the sort of his same elements we've seen of you know of the the dead ghost before. It's like oh, you see enough of him to be like that person is not alive.
2: Right. We just see the silhouette of it
0: at the end. Right. No. Yeah, you see,
2: like, his
1: shoulder and,
2: like, flies in, like, his his handkerchief. You can tell where his ghost is because handkerchiefs. And, yeah, so pretty much, like, when they can't find the gold, the two henchmen are like, hey, you're a weirdo, creepy loser orphan, especially after you stabbed your girlfriend and then told us that, like, oh, and there's the whole scene where they're showing where he's, like, showing his the hench guys his baby photos, and they could not be less into it. Yeah. So they just fucking bounce on him. Really just leaving Jacinto to get, as we mentioned, speared by a bunch of small children and then drowned, choked by a ghost, which, yeah, honestly, a fate that was completely deserved.
1: He does. He does find the gold, which ends up being part of what kills him.
2: Yeah,
0: Um, it weighs him down. (laughs) Yep. That's the best part. Uh, Yeah. That is
2: dramatic irony, I think.
1: Yeah, the, the gold One is the in leg, which she sort of tells us earlier. She was talking about how heavy her leg feels. Yeah. Uh, and then he finds it just before the bad get- before the buffoons take off. And uh, he's like, well, I'm just going to tie this around my room. belt and stuff my pockets with it. And then he ends up in a large thing of water. I loved not the reveal, though, enough. in the leg.
2: Because like, they've done such a good job establishing Carmen's emotional relationship to this prosthetic leg and her mm-hmm. feelings of it that in this moment of great emotional turmoil and stress, she says it's heavier than ever. I didn't think about it that. Yeah. But then when you get the reveal that she hid the gold in there and you think back to that, I'm just like, fucking Del Toro, you did it
0: again. <laughs> There's nothing that he doesn't tell us. Like he he plays so fair the whole time. Yeah, You know, you even had the Jacinto yeah. with Conchita way early in the movie talking about how someday he's going to come blow this place up. yeah. You know, his feelings about this orphanage. And then he does it. Tell
2: Toro managed to make a fucking cigar ring into an object of, uh, of such emotional weight that Jaime's murderous rage was so sympathetic and understood by the audience. And you're with him. This is a good move. All right, so they all die, and then the orphans go to town to find help. The end to the worst recap I've ever done. I'm sorry.
1: No, nah, it, it, was, it was good. It's a hard movie to recap because so much of it is like just character building and this like just being in this enclosed space where like they can't go out there a day and a half walk from anything and it's a war out there. Like, you know, they're all sort of it's locked great, in here, boiling up the whole time.
2: It's great use of setting. I mean, just the background of the war, this orphanage, the small amount of people, and then the fucking bomb in the courtyard I mean it's the movie excels at location and atmosphere, Loca- like character through location.
3: del Toro has talked about, and i I think it's really interesting how layered this is throughout the characterization and also the setting where he talks about how he felt that you know the anti fascist in the spanish civil war. Was- felt abandoned by Europe right and you hear them talk about that when Cesar and Carmen are like maybe you know someone will come help us and they're like no one's coming to help us you know they felt abandoned and then you have an orphanage like a literal metaphor for abandonment in some you know in some ways and it's this very isolating abandoned thing that's then reflected throughout the characters you know Jacinto feels used and abandoned like Santi feels abandoned like it's this very echoing theme throughout it which is part of what makes it such a bummer.
2: It's not a happy movie. No. I mean, I love, like let's call him Prince Taunt, a prince without a kingdom that she taunts Jacinto with.
3: Yeah,
2: I mean, she she calls him the saddest orphan of them all. Yeah, <laughs> fucking brutal. It's true, but yeah, no. maybe not. Like imagine not looking someone something. in the eye and going, "You, you are the loneliest orphan." <laughs> That man had Alfred, but you, nobody.
0: But I think it's that sense of, it, it's the way that they're juxtaposing his experience of being a boy in the orphanage and Carlos's, right? Where Carlos finds yeah. his community. He mm-hmm. finds his band of boys. And, and even Jaime has ultimately that group. You know, he has Carlos's acceptance in the end. And, you know, he has his little, you know, bully friends. And then there's this one kid this Jacinto who could just never make a connection with anyone really. And just the, the cost of that. And just like, that's, that's for me, like I felt so much compassion for Jacinto like right up until he started killing children. And then I was like, that's much.
2: I mean, it reminded me of that, you know, proverb, like the, you know, the child, not, you know, something I'm, I'm utterly mangling it, but you know, something about like the, you know the child who is not warmed by the fire of the village will burn it down for the heat.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know something about if a community doesn't take care of its own, its abandon can destroy it. I'm mangling mm-hmm. the idiom. Well, I, I, I thought you just made it I, up. I, I, I thought it was brilliant.
0: Say
3: it, it's applicable either way. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: works. But, I, I think it's interesting the different parallels in this movie because one that. Del Toro has talked about is that all of the heroic characters in this movie uh, are C-names Carmen, Casares, Carlos, Conchita, and there's two that are J-names, there's Asinto and Jaime, and they're they're names they're characters who are bullies, and Jaime chooses to change, and Asinto does not, and I I think that is an interesting comparison of, of those two, is like, I think Jaime could be Jacinto but he he chooses not to be he chooses you know to totally. care about people
2: Jacinto is what Jaime would have been if Carlos not brought comic books with him
3: <laughs> the power of comic like honestly <laughs> but I think there is like one of the things in this and also in Pan's Labyrinth there's this like fantasy of choice right like they are in a situation where they have no choices in both of those movies. You know, the war, the Spanish Civil War, these are children. They have no effect on this. And so there's this, like, the fairy tale aspect of them both is kind of this choice, right? You know, Jaime makes this choice to change and, like, you know, there's this choice to stab this guy to death and try to find your own way out, even though that's, like, completely doesn't make any sense you know um you know there's a choice to help santi rather than be afraid of him like i think that something that's really beautiful about the way he portrays children is he gives them a lot of agency and a lot of ability to make choices and i think that's also something you don't see a lot in narratives about children and i think that more things should have
0: does anybody else think about the lord of the flies when they're standing there, yes. they're making the spears, and they're <laughs> standing there. With the things. totally. <laughs> yeah,
2: the thing I- I'm that's shocking that, about I'm that is like,
0: that oh, fucking, are any of these kids named Simon? Someone, check. Right. <laughs> right? We mm-hmm. we know there's a pig out there, but but the thing is, they. I mean, yeah, sure, they do stab the guy to death, but it is kind of in self defense, and they don't they don't become the savages that you know the kids in The Lord of the Flies become. Like they don't turn on each other, and yeah. they do defend themselves against it- the one monster.
2: Yeah, I think, I think part of that is just icon- is iconography. Like, I think the idea of mm-hmm. a group of school age boys together with no adults, armed with spears, it's hard to see that and not think Lord of the Flies. Sure. It's the mammoth metaphor. It is a group of weak individuals forming a tribe together with which they can defeat a monster. Or a big says when elephant she's te- teaching ancestor. them about
0: the mammoth. When she's teaching them about the mammoth in class. She says something, doesn't she, about maybe they had to work together. Yeah, nobody could give up. Is that what she said? Yeah. I just thought of that. Jesus.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting (laughs) because uh, (laughs) you know, I, I did also think of Lord of the Flies, but the other thing that I keep thinking is like, the initial setup for this movie is the same as the Chronicles of Narnia. That like, there's a war going on and they're being shipped off to somewhere else to be safe during the war. And then they encounter weird magical elements of that place. Not nearly as much fun as Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, it's much more starving and uh, being killed. But, you know, it, it is sort of the same, like, you know, in, encountering this magical world when you're, you're shipped off because the adults are ruining everything.
0: I have, I have a question. Maybe you guys can answer it for me. What were the grains of strength? You know, Conchita would give them that little thing. that looked like communion and she'd say grain of thre- strength, grain of strength. I could never figure out what it was she was giving them.
3: I don't know. So part of what I think is interesting, and I wonder if this hit different, if you're not an escaped Catholic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, Maybe know. this is the
2: Jewish in me, but I just saw that. I'm like, ah, go, I am, sit. Just, uh, Go, I am doing go, I am. Well, I, I don't need to know. <laughs>
0: Kind of anti-Catholic, like they've hidden the crucifix, yeah. they, they've rejected it, and then they bring it back out because they know the fascists or the Catholics are going to show up. Exactly. I know, do. Right. I wonder that if is it is good...
3: that, if it's posing, you know, if it's part of the ruse or just adopting the iconography of Catholicism since they're in this weird fake Catholic situation. I don't know. I've never. That's in my brain, question. I just went, oh, it's communion.
2: <laughs> That's kind of what my brain went to, but no, you're. You're totally right. These You're are, they're, they're like atheists, probably. Like,
3: yeah, what the fuck was that? Goddamn. That's a great question. Shit.
1: Okay. So, Giga uh, Leporto answered now. this question on Twitter. Um, hey. Oh, never mind. We're going to get answers. It's It's a grain Thank of God. coffee, um, but one grain per kid was given for breakfast.
0: Coffee. Like a little coffee bee.
1: It's a little grain of coffee.
0: Hey, grain of strength. I, I also
3: feel that coffee is yeah, like I mean, strength I, I to just, make that it. that makes sense.
2: Like, we we, yeah. have, we don't have we don't have Jesus, but we do have coffee. We have caffeine. That, that's the the gift of the mind. That checks out.
0: Yep. Love
2: oh that. man. So, uh, do what else do we have to say about? It? Do we have any other particular moments or themes we want to discuss, or should we kind of uh, start steering in towards our uh, final discussion topics there?
1: I did want to talk about uh, we've talked about it to some extent already, but I think this movie uh, does a great job of for a limited female cast being pretty feminist, like the two female characters who are of concern in this story, like are both very well represented and deep characters uh, and, you know, as much of a as much of a hero as there is in this film, like they're they're both. I mean, Conchita, despite being, you know, Older than most of them there, but still pretty young. And, you know, should she would be pretty, e- even if her ex-boyfriend wasn't driving around in a Jeep trying to murder her, she would still be pretty vulnerable out there in the desert by herself. But she, you know, takes it on herself to be a G and go out there and like walk a day and a half to try and get, you know, the rest of these kids some kind of rescue. She, you know, she is also the only one who until the spears come out, puts a puts a dent in Jacinto. He does shoot him right in the shoulder.
0: Like and... the way that they start out with both Carmen and Conchita as being kind of stereotypical. You know, Carmen's sort of the severe, you know, orphanage matron. You know, she appears to be sort of unloving and, and tough. And then Conchita just seemed to be sort of the demure, as you pointed out earlier, like the lover of Jacinto. Just this sort of wimpy kind of gal and then we see them you know kind of more deeply as the the film goes on and we see you know Carmen as a fairly complex person we see her as a sexual person we see her as you know this very conflicted you know emotional person that is very different from the person we meet at the very beginning and you know and I think Conchita one of the things I love about that last scene with Jacinto is that she's specifically refusing to apologize to him. Like, there's that 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 way that women are constantly having to apologize to men for men's bad behavior. And she's just not going to have it. Like, that's the thing she's refusing to do. That's why he stabs her, because he, she will not kneel to him. And I just thought that was super powerful.
2: I mean, there's a lot to... I mean, he says, you're making a fool out of me. <laughs> and that warrants death in his mind. Mm-hmm.
1: He's worried about looking like a fool in front of pig. Death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like fucking,
2: the pig.
3: A guy named the pig.
2: How how dare you me look bad in front of like these two? I gotta look good for my bros.
3: Yeah. It's funny because I didn't want to like the with this in case anybody didn't like it. This is my favorite movie ever made by humans. <laughs> um and it's a very good movie. Uh, it's a good it's a pretty good movie. So the first time I made my now husband watch it. When we finished it, he was like, wow. I was like, yeah. We are both, he was like, that toxic masculinity. (laughs) Which was like, somewhat. (laughs) But it's true. I mean, Hasento does represent this like toxic male machoist thing. And again, it's that choice. Like he's chosen to forsake anything that goes against that. This is what he thinks he needs to do to survive in this world that they're in which we know is a choice that people make in real life when they lean into that stuff too, you know? I don't know. He's got so much depth as a villain, even though he is also kind of a picture-perfect example of, yeah, like that toxic masculine, like, you're not going to make me look bad in front of the pig
0: (laughs) (laughs) woman. I I think it's also interesting that Jacinto is like almost the most beautiful character in the film. I mean, he's just a very, very beautiful man. And I just think that what they're playing with in terms of like he's not an ugly villain he's not you know a scarred you know guy he's he represents the sort of that sort of beautiful man who should have everything and yet he's a pathetic loser and he can't manage to get anything prince of that kingdom
1: and yeah, he almost seems to have a sort of like resentment that he's not out there in the war like he's bringing the war here he's finding people to fight despite the fact that like he is in this one place that like to this point, has more or less been spared from the war, like to the point of almost magical happenings. That you know, that bomb falls in the middle of the orphanage and does not blow up is a miracle. Yeah. And the, like he is determined to bring that sort of destruction to this place, just because he can't, he he doesn't rule it. You know, he can't have whatever he wants here. Huh. You know, it's it's really interesting. And yeah, it the way it deals with. Masculinity and toxic versions of masculinity, in particular, is very fascinating to me.
3: And even Cesare kind of is in that that, like we were talking about earlier, like he's drinking that baby punch to cure his <laughs> impotence. You know, because I think that you know he feels he can't be man enough, quote unquote, for Carmen. Like throughout, and then you see the boys being tender and supportive of each other, you know, it gives a lot of different nuanced pictures of masculinity, I think.
0: Yeah. Just think about the sort of male testing of each other that the boys do of, you know, when Carlos is coming back with a pitcher of water and the the boys have got the slingshots at him and Jaime's basically pranking him when they go to get the water. This idea of boys or men making each other prove something Mm -hmm. in order to be part of the team, in order to, like, be worthy of your companionship. I mean, how does that fit into the whole toxic masculinity analysis?
1: I don't know. They they seem to, they seem to initially have, I mean, obviously Jaime is sort of the ring, ringleader in this, that some of the other kids wouldn't, wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for him. And, you know, they sort of fall in behind him because he's the big tough kid, especially I guess since Santi died, he's made himself tougher. I mean, he's
2: taller. He, yeah. he still mm-hmm. looks like a stiff breeze can knock him over. But he I mean, is that's mostly because it would
1: catch his ears.
0: I, <laughs>
1: it was it was striking me how this kid who is essentially the villain in this looks very much like a kid who might be cast as a weak kid in, in another movie. I don't know. Again, he, he reminds just, me of
0: somebody.
2: He, he rules by literally towering over all the other kids. Like He has a full head on a lot of these kids. He is so much taller.
0: Yeah. And they all they all think he had something to do with Santi's death. Yeah. They're they're scared oh, of him yeah, because yeah. they think he had something to do with Santi's death. That helped. That helps his reputation. But,
2: yeah. yeah. I mean the the movie does Horrible. play it like you're not sure. Like when Carlos looks through his notebook and finds the drawing of Santi oh. of Sante with the head wound. Like it's an effective misdirect or mm-hmm. mystery to the movie as to what happened to Santi, who really did it. As it turns out, it's the person you'd most likely suspect, but they do do a good job throwing some Mister X.
0: They've already showed you at the very beginning, right? You know Jaime with the boy, you know on on the ground, like and running away. So you you think you've already seen the scene where he's killed the kid, yeah? Right? And then later we see the picture, so that just reinforces what we think we've already been told. Yeah. So we're all scared of him too.
1: Yeah, I think. <laughs> I think who it is that Jaime reminds me of is Neville Longbottom. He just kind of looks like <laughs> yeah. He's, 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 I mean, even Neville is you know sort of the the dork of that group who's you know clumsy and and bad at magic. Is like he's still taller and has the same sort of ears that that this kid does. But yeah, I think like that the reaction to Carlos, I. D- I don't know if it's more about masculinity or if it's about class that Carlos seems to come in thinking that mm-hmm. he is better than these kids at the orphanage, or at least that's the way they're reading it is, you know, he's seeing this as a, a visit. He's is with, the, you know, these guys from the loyalists. He's just you know, he's going to go back out of this and see his dad anytime now. Um, They're, you know, sort of seeing that as him looking down on them that, you know, yeah, they, he, they give him shit about having a tutor. Yeah, yeah
0: that's right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> The tutor bit comes back a couple of times. Tutor teach you that. The other section and this that's really worth talking about is it's not a real strong movie on the LGBT front. There's not only not any sort of representation there. Pacento and some of the boys throw around some slurs in there too, which are not
0: mm-hmm.
1: great, but probably accurate to, to the characters. Yeah, that they they would have thrown that stuff around. But yeah, there's there's no real representation or anything to discuss.
0: No, unless, of course, we imagine that Carlos grows up to be a gay writer. But, you know, that's just me projecting.
2: I had canon that uh, Carlos takes after Dr. Casares' example and becomes a doctor.
1: Oh, you know, Jaime is an artist, so he's probably just a little gay, right?
0: Right. It's, yeah.
1: He's a comic book artist. Who knows? And apparently he's based on a lot on the comic book artists that Guillermo del Toro likes. I, I think we talked about a little bit before. I think IMDb had his name, so let me grab that. I
2: did have to laugh at the scene where Jaime is like, I'll trade you your comic for my homemade porn. It's super realistic. And then I know this is a kid handing in a kid drawing, but it reminded me of the scene of it's always sunny in Philadelphia when Glenn Howerton is doing like the cartoon is like drawing just the big, you know, big sexy lady with his like stick figure cartoon drawing. And the
1: I don't know why it hit me so funny, but I, I cracked up when he's he's showing this and everybody's complimenting him how good it is. And I, I don't know if it's Owl or Galvez. One of them is like, yeah, I the, think it was the, Galvez kind of sideways. Like, yeah, that was really you got that wrong. That
2: was, I mean, it was both funny, but also kind of and you're like Jaime as this character that does not know as much as he's pretending to, but will not and will react with bluster and anger when called out on it.
0: Yeah.
1: So the oh. the um, the cartoonist we were looking for the name of is uh, Carlos Jimenez. And he, he wrote a comic which is somewhat apparently about his him living in a Francoist orphanage during the early 50s, um, which I guess oh, was wow. a source for some of the some of the ideas for this. And then, you know, he was brought That's on to storyboard for the film as well. Oh, wow. It is a great so, way to pay back an artist that you've been inspired by. If, yeah. You know, you're a, Yeah. Or a guy right. who's making movies.
3: Yeah, that's like uh, Mike Mignola storyboarding Blade 2. Yeah. Another GDT. Yeah. GDT is the only good comics fan. It's worth learning.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, as we say in this podcast, uh the only superhero movie ever made is Venom 2. <laughs> that That's my personal policy to avoid the discourse. Scarier than any horror movie we've ever watched.
1: On Blade 2. You know, we have to acknowledge Blade because we talk about motherfuckers trying to ice skate uphill so often.
2: Yeah, we're going to have to talk about Blade at some point. I mean, I will say Blade is legitimately one of my favorite movies.
1: Blade 2 is especially good because, you know, Guillermo del Toro. At some point, we'll have to get around to talking about his comic book movies. Between that and Hellboy, there's a lot to talk about.
2: Oh, God, Hellboy. Especially Hellboy 2. Oh, I know it's the movie. The scene of Abe... And Hellboy drinking and like the library thing talking about romance and relationships and feelings will just always be one of my favorite movie scenes of all time.
1: Yeah, this is uh, Devil's Backbone is the only Guillermo del Toro movie in which neither of those gentlemen appear. There is uh, no Doug Jones and no uh, Ron Perlman in this movie. Wild. Yeah, (laughs) one of them is in every other Guillermo del Toro movie. And somehow it's still good. I don't know. Those those
3: guys are (laughs) great. even without Ron Perlman, a movie can be watchable. Trending. Yeah.
2: I wouldn't have believed it, but it turns out to be true.
3: <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> Just have to wait for the, the remake in which, you know, we cast Perlman as Casares and I guess Doug Jones can be Carmen. Just <laughs> pair the two of them up; it would be great. So uh, I guess that leads uh, to my question uh, that we always ask, which is, uh, do you feel like this movie's is worth seeing? Would you recommend it to people listening to the podcast?
3: Absolutely. Movies, movies great. I feel like we know my answer is a big, yes. Two thumbs up. 10, 10, yes. 10 Ivy score. <laughs> backbone. But don't watch it. If you, you are, are worried about seeing violence to kids, it's something that we talked about.
1: Yeah. That's a, that's a big no, no. As I think we've discussed from my wife, Alicia is any film in which there is inherent threat or violence to children. It's just not into it. Um, There's a lot that of one. that in here,
0: yeah, yeah. There really is. I mean, this was actually my first time watching it, and I thought it was pretty freaking amazing. And um, yeah, I mean, I have to say that I think it's. I thought it was better than Pan's Labyrinth. So, and I love that movie. So, I highly recommend it. I did think it was. I mean, just cinematically, it was just a beautiful film. And as a, we didn't even hardly talk about Carlos and the coming of age aspects of it. And just for that, it's. There's a certain sweetness to it that is pretty amazing, and when the boys all leave together, that that to me was very redemptive of all the violence against all the other poor dead boys in the in the yard.
2: It's a very uplifting move moment. Like they've got in peace for Santi, they've slown. slown. they 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 killed Jacinto, <laughs> and there's definitely a behind in my head going like, oh, I will still definitely wounded. And this is a two day walk, and uh oh, like, how is this gonna turn out for little kids? But there's also the part of my brain definitely going, like, shut the fuck up. Don't, it's emotionally resonant. We're, we're feeling emotionally good. Shh, turn your fucking logic brain off and enjoy the ending.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it is interesting in that respect. I and mean, I think it's supposed to be, you know, an ending that is like, it is hopeful, but also there's a good chance that these kids are ultimately doomed because even if they do get across this day and a half walk to town, they're still in the middle of the Spanish Civil War. You know, the the place where they were safe is gone. You know, they've
0: even if they survive the war, they're going to live under Franco for decades.
1: Yeah. yeah, they are victorious in this moment, but there's a there's a lot of stuff that's not going to be great after this. I think it's a very Guillermo del Toro moment. There's a yeah, you know, I mean that is. Like, that is basically the, like, climax of, I mean, not to spoil it, but Pan's Labyrinth is like, hey, this thing is great. Also, it's terrible. You have a second of being hopeful about this. Well, that one we're talking about next week. So that's something to look forward to, having your dreams dashed. Uh, Ben, do you have anything to recommend for people uh, coming out of this one? Matilda. I don't know why.
2: I just had to think of something really fast. Then Matilda was the first thing that came to my head because it's also kids who deserve nice things and not enough nice things happen to them. And also supernatural elements are in both. So also Danny DeVito.
1: Yeah, kids surviving despite the failure of every person and system that's supposed to protect them, I think uh, resonates here.
2: Yeah, I think it's pretty apt.
1: Now
3: I want to watch Matilda.
1: Right? Never a bad time to watch Matilda. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ivy, did you have anything you wanted to recommend?
3: I think that a really good, like, spiritual pair to this movie is The Others with Nicole Kidman, which is also a very tragic kind of captured ghost story. If you haven't watched that one, I think it really explores the trauma of ghosts a bit in a different direction. Very interesting. With time and distance from it, I think it's a much better movie than people thought it was when it first came out. And I know y'all have talked about this on your show before, but His House... Would be yeah, another yes. one that I would recommend if you liked Devil's Backbone oh like a hundred percent. And then finally, I will recommend another one of my all-time favorites, which is the 1963 version of The Haunting by Robert Wise, which is an adaptation of Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House. Probably the most accurate adaptation that's been made, which is another like very interesting psychological horror that does a lot with really beautiful, weird cinematography. Those are, those are the ones I would say if you liked Apple's Backbone.
2: Great picks. And yeah, we fucking loved his house.
3: His house was incredible. Like, it mm-hmm. it stuck with me for like Oh, weeks. yeah. I was thinking about that movie. Yeah, I still is...
2: can't fucking use a fork without thinking about that movie. <laughs> well, that's frightening.
3: Yeah, that one's
1: a, no, lot,
2: a lot to deal the, with. The, the fork is not part of the horror, more just very interesting. They just very interesting themes of assimilation.
3: Yes. Yeah. Oh, but
2: no, no, no fork related horror, only fork related cultural practices that make you think once made aware of them.
0: Oh, that would be so good. Maybe it's time for a rewatch and so putting that on my list now.
1: Yeah, we just talked about that in uh, February. So anybody who is, is interested in that one, checks it out, can uh, go back and listen to that episode as well, because that was that was another one of those that, like, again, we liked so much that we were just not even sure what to say about.
0: <laughs> there
2: wasn't a lot of silliness in that one there was a lot of like yep that was good let's talk about how thematic and interesting and complex that was
1: yeah absolutely we
2: we to be fair we did get a lot of mileage out of matt smith's rosencratz and gildenstern are dead movie like i we was gonna pitching. say
3: you've got to have some matt smith he, matt smith bits I had to present them yeah. Matt, oh yeah. We, Matt, we talked a lot was, about how this
2: is a very different movie when presented entirely from Matt Smith's perspective. The,
1: the civil servant who just feels like his life is falling apart while this, you know, these these immigrants keep showing up telling him about this ghost that's in the house that he got for them. Like the scene where he's the guy is telling him this stuff about there being a witch in their house. And Matt Smith is clearly like, oh, you can't see this in front of the, the other guys I work with. This is definitely not gonna be good. Is it's 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 tough. Like My
2: favorite moment in the whole film is when Matzo shows up at the house at the end and they're just like, oh, no, it's fine. She killed the ghost. And Matzo just has this like, okay then. Good to know. Cool. (laughs) Fine. This problem fixed itself, I guess. Oh, good movie.
0: Yeah. So I think my recommendation is for talking about coming of age in the middle of the war. Anti-fascist films would be Jojo Rabbit. Loved that. Um have
1: been seeing JoJo Rabbit.
0: A very different tone and tenor, but very much, I think, the same seems. Right. Um, loved that one. Not in the horror vein, but um, we talked about it a little bit earlier. Just started watching Poker Face and loving that. And I think it's a oh, good question so because it's so so oh,
2: good. it sounds great. Oh, yeah. Oh, we got fucking Ron Perlman.
3: There you go. There's oh, your Ron Perlman. Oh. <laughs> yep. Every yep.
2: episode has at least
1: one guest star that makes me go,
3: oh, holy shit, they're in
2: this
0: <laughs> episode? Right.
1: Yeah, the I think to date my favorite episode is The Time of the Monkey because Judith Light and S. of the Epison are like so good as the like bonded at the hip, ex-hippie, you know, quasi-terrorists. Like they're so, that, that, so good.
2: That's my favorite one too.
1: Brilliant. Yeah, I, you know. I I love the way it uses the guest stars in that show in particular, that, you know, everybody gets to play a part that you don't necessarily see them being. You get to see a very quiet, reserved Luis Guzman. I mean,
2: I gotta say, being given a whole episode of Tim Meadows felt like a gift to me, personally.
3: Absolute gift. What a treasure. Or a whole episode where you get John Darnielle from the Mountain Goats targeting, like, exactly the me, Democrats.
1: (laughs) I, I... I cheered when John Darnielle showed up on screen. I was like, shut up. I I have a hard time recommending something to go with this movie that we're not already talking about. For all the like Guillermo del Toro stuff that we're talking about and/or have talked about, but I did mention uh, that our you know lead actress in this, our Carmen, is also a regular in several Pedro Almodovar films. It is worth noting as well that Pedro Almodovar is an executive producer on this movie. That. Guillermo Toro was working on this movie for years and it wasn't happening until Pedro Almodovar watched Kronos and then asked him to produce his next film. So I think it's worth tying this recommendation to All About My Mother, Pedro Almodovar's movie, which stars um, Marisa Paredes in you know one of the main roles and is a, just a fantastic movie. I, there aren't many Pedro Almodovar movies that I don't like, but this one in particular is is really fantastic and has sort of that exploring the interiority of older women, which, you know, this, this movie does, which is, I think, rare. And as people go that do it, Pedro Almodovar is really good at it. It's a hard movie to explain, so I'm just going to read the little IMDb caption here, which is Pedro Almodovar's Oscar-winning comedy about a bereaved mother, an overwrought actress, her jealous lover, and a pregnant nun. Which I think gives you a real feeling. And the they type are all of... walk into a bar. Yeah, yeah. So if, if you haven't seen that movie, I mean, I honestly recommend most Pedro Almodovar stuff, but All About My Mother in particular is, is really good and maybe a little less traumatic than the other one which she plays a major part in, which is uh, the, uh, <laughs> the Skin I Live In, which is a very difficult movie to recommend because it's a very difficult movie to watch. We're going to have to talk about it here at some point because it's sort of a horror movie. I'm not sure if you can even say that for sure. That movie's a lot. All right, that's it. That uh wraps it up for us. I do want to uh, make sure you guys can let people know where they can find more about you and your work online. Ivy, can you let people know where they can find out what you're up to and, and hit you up online?
3: Yeah, so I'm at ivynoelweird.com. Then I'm on basically every social media platform at, at ivynoel. I feel like i'm pivoting more to instagram these days because i know how to use it and twitter is dying (laughs) but i'm on twitter still
0: until the ship goes down i guess
3: it's
1: relatable uh susan what about you where can people find out more about you and what you're working on
0: susanbenville.com i attempt to twitter every now and then but social media wise i'm mostly on substack these days um i substack is called swirling words that's where I'm putting up some of my web comics, personal essays around being a writer um, and kind of work in progress stuff.
1: Nice. And as always, even though she's not here, you can find Emily at Megamoth on Twitter and at Mega underscore Moth on Instagram and at Megamoth.net. Ben is at Ben McCon the on their website and BenConComics.com where you can pick up all of their books, including pre-ordering Al Campbell wins their weekend, their debut graphic novel from Scholastic coming out later this year. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrome58 and on my website at jeremywhitley.com where you can find everything I write, including "We're During the Dog Night, which is coming out this May from me and Bree Indigo. And I'm super excited about it and super excited about you guys finally reading it because we've been working on it since before the pandemic started. <laughs> and of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified, our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm. On Twitter at Prog Horror Pod, where we would love to hear from you. And speaking of loving to hear from you, we would love it if you'd rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening to it. Giving us five stars helps other people find the podcast, helps us get recommended to more folks. Thanks again to Ivy and Susan for joining us. Guys, this was so much fun. This is such a great movie. It was great to talk to you about it.
3: Thank you. Yeah, thank you for giving me the chance to talk about it because <laughs> I was recommended to come on here by my best friend Steen. So I think is tired of hearing me talk about it.
1: Yeah, I, oh, I, we, I hit up Steve heard... and Steve was like, you need to email Ivy about this right now. <laughs> we we are most thrilled to have you on and
2: telling us about it. This was a delightful movie to get, get to discuss. And I'd never seen it before, so I I am, my life is now richer for having seen Devil's Backbone.
1: Have you seen Pan's Labyrinth yet? I haven't. You're going to understand so much more references after next week. Right? So. My, my partner is very excited. Uh, she almost
2: never watches any of these horror movies, but she very much wants to watch Man's Labyrinth with me this
1: weekend. I I haven't watched it since, like, the first two times I saw it, like, when it came out in theaters, so I'm excited about sitting down with that one and hopefully living up to the, the deep and abiding love I've had for it since then. But, you know, who knows? Maybe my soul will be crushed next week when you hear it from me. But I doubt it. Guillermo hasn't let me down yet. All right. Thanks again to uh, all of you for listening. Thanks to Ben for being here. And we will talk to you next week about Pan's Labyrinth.
0: Until next time, stay horrified.